Hello to all of our listeners out there, and welcome to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. This is a special back-to-school episode for all of you parents, teachers, and members of the community who are thinking about our school communities as they begin a new school year in the midst of this pandemic. Our guest today is Dr. Leslie Templeton, a professor of psychology at Hendricks College. She teaches, among other things, courses in childhood and adolescent development. She's also a parent of two young men, one of whom is going off to college this year. So as we talk about going back to school today, Leslie brings not only her own understanding of child and adolescent development, but also her perspective as both an educator and a parent. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Mary. So Leslie, as you know, I'm also a parent. Leslie and I, for our listeners, we're neighbors and we've got kids who have enjoyed playing together over the years. So Leslie knows that my spouse is also a school teacher and we have all been in this ongoing conversation about going back to school. In fact, almost anyone I talk to these days has this subject on their minds. Is it safe to go back to school? Is it safe to send our kids? Is it safe to send our teachers? There's so many pros and cons to be weighed about education and socialization and just overall well-being. Leslie, tell me, what has this experience been like for you? We have two sons, and last spring when the pandemic really got heated up and they closed the schools, our older son was a senior at Plasky Academy, and our younger son was in the eighth grade at Pinnacle View Middle School. And for our younger son, the transition to remote instruction and remote learning was really no big deal. He's pretty self-contained usually and doesn't really crave a lot of the social interaction that other kids get from school, so he was fine. For Conrad, our older son, it was really, really difficult, not just because he was missing out on a lot of the social interaction that he really enjoyed and interactions with teachers. His lacrosse season got cut dramatically short. And as a senior lacrosse player, he helped start the team at PA, and he got a lot of validation from participating as a student athlete. And so looking forward to that since his 11th grade year and looking forward to the season over the summer and over the fall as they practice, and then having that cut was dramatically disappointing. It was intensely disappointing and caused a lot of angst. It was probably the most disappointing thing for him. And then the other things, milestones of the academic year for seniors, even things like senior day at school where the seniors get to leave for lunch and not come back to school for the rest of the day or senior prom. And some of those things I was surprised to find that I was really disappointed about. I mean, the parents Mm -hmm. of senior lacrosse players get honored at one of the big games. And it wasn't that I was wanting all the attention focused on me, but I was looking forward to having Conrad really singled out for a moment in a game that he has come to love so much. And so having the last day of his senior year really go unmarked, having commencement and graduation, all those things not happening like they normally would was really a struggle for him on top of our restrictions on both of the children that were intended to keep them safe. And so we have always been following the CDC guidelines. My husband's a physician and has continued going to work with an N95 mask and doing some hospital work masked and some clinic work over Zoom doing telemedicine. And so he was being able to go out into the world and have some of the same kinds of interactions. But for our kids, it was really challenging to not be able to do not just normal school things, but normal life things. We have not been to a church service at our church 
They've not been able to do things like meet up with friends in more casual ways. They haven't been able to do things like go to the movies, go swimming with friends, go to friends' houses. All of those social disruptions have been pretty challenging at the same time understood by them. So I've been impressed by how gracefully they've handled a lot of these restrictions and how easy they have made it in a lot of ways. But we are having the same challenges other people have, but we also have a lot of blessings that have made it not as difficult. And so I've pointed out to both of our kids, when we went remote in the spring, I've sat at my office at my dining room table. And so I taught from my table and the boys have their own spaces. And we had enough computers that they were each able to do their online schoolwork. I mean, we didn't have to fight with one another over a computer. My and my husband's incomes were not disrupted, so we've never had to worry about making our mortgage payment or paying for food or paying for health care. We don't have a lot of the struggles that many people around the country are having. And so in all of this stress, we have taken lots of opportunities to talk with our kids about the blessings we have and how we should appreciate those. There is a lot to be grateful for. And some of that gratitude is coming out in really interesting ways, I think. Even in our church community, I belong to Gower Springs United Methodist Church. It's a very, very small congregation. When we stopped having in-person church services, we have some older congregants who are just not easy with Facebook, which is where we've been having a lot of our services. Mm -hmm. And so the choir director and my sons and I and another church member have been paying calls every week on Mm -hmm. congregants. And those have been opportunities for both of my kids to not just see how someone else's life is progressing in COVID, but to appreciate the fact that they have siblings in the house that they can talk to. And I say play with, I mean, they're playing video games (laughs) together and board games and card games and watching movies. They're occupying, but they appreciate they've got a built-in social group with our family, but it's also been an activity that I think otherwise they would not have done. They would never be standing in Mr. Bensick's driveway playing a hymn on the flute and reading scripture and having prayer in the front yard and having people drive by and toot their horns and wave because they know that we're paying <laughs> church calls. There are experiences we're having that have turned out to be moments of grace for us unexpectedly, and I appreciate those. And I do think that we need to celebrate what we are able to accomplish these days. Like you, when we were still in the spring semester, but finishing school from home, my husband and two sons were also on their computers. Me too, also at my computer. We were all on our computers all day long. And that was hard. But you know, we all got done what we needed to get done. We've been healthy and well and taking care of each other. And I think we need to celebrate and acknowledge those nice accomplishments right now. And that family time too has been Mm -hmm. both really wonderful and at times pretty stressful. But I think it's given our family opportunities to talk about what our ideal family life might look like and Mm -hmm. what our children have seen of their friends' family lives and what they like about those and what they don't like about those. And Robert and I have talked about back when we were engaged and we were envisioning what our family life would be like, what Mm -hmm. we hoped for. Those conversations have opened up questions in our children's minds and conversations in our family that have actually been unexpected and pretty fruitful. Being more thoughtful about what you hope your family life is going to be like is something we weren't expecting out of this. 
So perhaps I should just add here that we're really not going to give anyone an answer today. We're talking about back to school, but not having an answer is part of what is making this whole situation so difficult, that what might be best for one child may not be best for another child or family. We are all trying to weigh the physical, intellectual, social, emotional, even financial implications for our children and our families. What we can do together, what I hope we can accomplish in this podcast is simply to talk through some of the issues. Leslie, could you talk a little bit about the benefits of in-person education, especially for children and youth? Yeah, this is a hot topic, as you might imagine, among developmental psychologists around the Mm -hmm. country, around the world. We all recognize that there are social benefits from having children around other children of their age who have maybe similar interests or even dissimilar interests. And so when kids go to school, they get to be around children who are like them and unlike them, and they have opportunities throughout a day to interact with them. One of my big frustrations when both of my children were in elementary school is that their elementary school did not let the kids talk at lunch. I think is inhumane and also Mm. doesn't serve the purpose of training children how to be people in the world. Everyone should be able to enjoy conversation over a meal with friends. And so it was keeping kids from having an opportunity to practice those conversational skills and those social skills of talking and listening and sustaining and interaction. Kids get those social benefits when they're with one another. And of course, those happen outside of school. But the interactions that happen in school are just particularly important because kids are with kids who are not just like them. They don't come from the same neighborhood or same family configuration or they have different interests. That's a big benefit of being in school. Psychologists actually talk about another constellation of benefits that children have from being around other kids and their self-regulation kind of benefits. And so the psychological concept of self-regulation is a way of talking about self-control. And we gain self-regulation abilities as we get older, you know, through childhood and adolescence. So if you can self-regulate your behavior, it means that you don't blurt out your thoughts. You raise your hand and wait until the teacher calls on you. Or instead of having a temper tantrum, you emotionally self-regulate and you keep yourself calm enough to be able to function. And so kids have lots of opportunities to learn how to self-regulate when they're at school in ways they might not get at home. So even those of us who were trying to do the education from home in the spring, our best efforts probably did not meet the same kinds of efforts that children get from the adults around them at school. And part of it is that the school day is pretty highly structured. Children know pretty specifically what's expected from them. They know what's going to happen each hour of the day, what's coming next. That kind of structure helps them become more structured and regulated in their own behavior. So that self-regulation can be physical and emotional and cognitive. Children who might suffer from attention deficit disorder or who have a hard time paying attention, if they can cognitively self-regulate, it means that they realize that they're off task and they get themselves back on task. So school is good for those kinds of things. And those kinds of things are good for learning how to be a person in the world. If I am physically self-regulated, cognitively self-regulated, emotionally self-regulated, if someone cuts me off on Henson when I'm trying to go to the post office in my car, 
I can keep myself from laying on my horn and rolling the window down and screaming or, you know, having a meltdown. Kids are getting these skills at school that help them be people in the world. It doesn't mean that they can't get those same benefits at home. It's just school is really good for kids right. in that way. benefit that we're hearing a lot more about since COVID is that for kids who are from vulnerable populations, school is even more important. So for children who are food insecure, going to school is a guaranteed breakfast and lunch for them that they might not otherwise be guaranteed. For kids who are from homes that are unstable, and so there are lots of reasons for instability. So if their parents or caregivers have mental health issues, or addictions and substance abuse issues, or if they themselves are under a lot of stress and can't provide really stable, consistent care, going to school for those children provides the safety and the structure that all kids benefit from. I think in Little Rock, at least, there have been a lot of efforts to provide some of those protections. I know that children are able to get free meals from the public libraries and from other locations, but for a lot of kids, going to school is a really special opportunity to be safe and to be taken care of and to have structure and to make use of their intellectual abilities and their social skills in ways that we just can't always offer at home. Yes, our church is involved in a backpack feeding program. So during the Wonderful. normal school year, we are providing weekend food to supplement what kids receive at school. When school shut down, we were really fortunate. The school counselors mostly stepped up to help us maintain those connections with the kids. We're aware that there are many children who rely on school for good nutrition. Thinking about the socialization, one compromise that we had to make in our household when this happened, my younger son, Matthew, enjoys playing video games, and we have always tried to keep a reasonable tab on how much of that he was doing. When school ended and we entered into really slow times for summer during a pandemic, video games became his only socialization. In fact, his best friends were on a different gaming system. We were PlayStation people, and his friends were Xbox. <laughs> so we ended up finding a neighbor who was willing to sell us an old Xbox for cheap so that Matthew could play with his best friends. Creative parenting. You're well, making I, sure he has that social <laughs> interaction. Even I think it's worth acknowledging that Matthew and Hugh, my younger son, mm -hmm. are having very different childhood experiences than you and I probably had. I would never have wanted to play video games, mm -hmm. even with friends. That wasn't a thing I did. But if that's where Matthew is getting his mm -hmm. social interactions, then fantastic. Thank you for giving him the opportunity to be able to do that. 
Well, I notice it's not in person, but they are talking to each other. You know, when the game gets intense, (laughs) they have to negotiate how each one is playing. If they get into an argument, they have to resolve that. So it has made me feel better (laughs) about the amount of video games that we play because I at least know that he's getting a kind of replacement for the social interactions that he would normally have. Even with us, I've asked you, would you like to have friends come over and y'all could sit in the driveway or you Mm -hmm. can go in our backyard or we can find a way for you to see them face to face. And most of the time he says, well, I've already talked to them today. We've already been Mm -hmm. online together. And when we have invited friends over, two of Hugh's friends, their mothers are very good friends of mine. And the three of us do lots of things with the three boys together. And so we've had driveway happy hour every couple Mm -hmm. of weeks where we take turns going to each other's houses and the moms sit. I've got our deck mapped out so that we can figure out how to sit (laughs) six plus feet apart and the boys get to see each other. And I think Hugh enjoys those opportunities, but I don't know that he thinks they're more important or valuable to him than the times he gets to be with them online, which is such an interesting generational cohort difference, something that my mother cannot understand. She can't understand and she doesn't have to. But yeah, I suspect that someday when you're telling the story about all of this, you'll say, Matthew, do you remember that (laughs) you were a PlayStation person, but we got this Xbox? That's going to be a piece of your family lore that will be, Mm -hmm. hopefully you've taken a picture of him playing on it so that you can put it in the family scrapbook to bring out in 30 years. So I'm wondering your opinion then about the pros and cons of online school or even homeschooling. What are, I know that many of us are considering those options right now. So one thing to make really clear is that homeschooling is a different beast from what we're being asked to do with online schooling. So families who homeschool choose to homeschool based on their own reasons that don't have anything to do with the health conditions in the outside world. The nature of homeschooling means that at least one of the parents has completely bought in to their role in the homeschooling. They have materials and a curriculum that they're going to follow. It's also super flexible. Homeschooling families really love homeschooling because it's also completely customizable. And so if you've got a kid who loves dinosaurs, then you can find educational materials to cover all of the educational bases with dinosaurs. And then you can take field trips to go see a natural history museum. You can have three hours of homeschool every morning and then the rest of the day for family activities. That's not what we're getting out of online schooling with established school districts and schools. And so that's one point I want to make. Homeschool people have it going on. They have people who are helping their kids with band participation or sports participation or subjects that the homeschooling parents not completely comfortable with. When we do online education through the school district or a private school, that's just a real different thing. I mean, I personally knew from before the time I had children that I was never going to homeschool any children I had. I'm real comfortable with public education, and I knew that that's what I was going to be doing. The benefits and the difficulties of homeschooling versus just what we're doing now, the remote education, to me, it's oranges and apples. I can't compare them. I will say that for many children who are in public and private schools who are getting to have that remote instruction experience, 
having to navigate online has given them a sense of agency and authorship and empowerment that we might not have seen at the earlier ages. And so actually there's a lot of psychological research getting done right now. The research, the data is being collected, but there's a certain point, And right now it seems to be like around age eight or nine that mm-hmm. kids actually benefit from the responsibility that comes with keeping up with a lot of the online work. I think that's maybe something that's kind of unexpected. I think it's asking parents to be a little more involved in day-to-day curricular issues than we would normally be. And I think it gives kids opportunity to reach out to other kids for help in a way that we see in person that we weren't expecting for remote. I'm going to be really honest. I mean, I think that there are lots of cons for not being in school Mm face-to-face. I think that there are cons to going online and a lot of it has to deal with how parents can manage to work from home at full-time jobs and supervise children who are doing work online and keep Mm -hmm. up with that. And I think that there are very few pros to being online other than our children not getting infected. All of what we're talking about is taking place in this framework of the reason we're even talking about it is that sending our children to school means we're accepting a certain level of risk that they will get sick and that if they get sick, even if they are asymptomatic, they can make us sick. And even if we're asymptomatic, we can make other people that we care about sick and they may not be asymptomatic. Even when I'm saying I don't see a whole lot of pros in terms of the benefits to children intellectually, cognitively, socially, I think the big pro is we're keeping our children from getting sick and getting sick in a way that could kill them. And if it doesn't kill them, it could lead to lasting damage to their heart, their lungs, and Mm. handicap them for the rest of their lives. I guess that is actually a pretty big pro for (laughs) remote education. And, you know, full disclosure, Hugh is starting Central High School this month, and we've already designated him as a virtual learner for the first nine weeks because we are Mm -hmm. concerned about him getting sick. That might not be the kind of information you were hoping for. I wish that I had lots of pros to being remote, but it's a challenge. I think kids can still learn that way. Right. But it's going to be really different from being in person. I think that that's exactly the kind of deliberation that we are all engaged in right now. How safe can they be in school? And if they can be in school, then that's preferable for most of our kids. But if it's not, we probably need to figure out what we're going to get from being at home and what we can mm-hmm. expect from being at home. this up earlier, I have to say I'm also a bit sad about the loss of many of the traditions that typically bring a lot of joy to our lives. My oldest child will be beginning his senior year this year, and though we don't know this, I suspect that he'll miss out on some of those celebrations and rites of passage that usually make that senior year so special. Your oldest is a year ahead of mine, so you've already had to deal with that, as we mentioned How have you adapted or coped with that kind of loss? We are a very talkative kind of family. We talk with Conrad and Hugh both, but Conrad especially, just about 
yes, it's disappointing and it's frustrating and it's sad. And so we try to acknowledge whenever he expresses his own disappointment and sadness and upset. We acknowledge that, of course, that's reasonable for him to be feeling that way. We let him process that as much as he needs. He has had quite a bit of frustration with all of this. He wants to have a normal experience. He wanted to have a really typical, normal senior year of high school, and he wants to have a typical, normal first year of college. And so one thing that's been really useful to us is having our own milestones and celebrations. We did not have prom night at our house, which I know was kind of a thing somewhere in the United States, but we did get takeaway dinner the night of his senior prom, and we set a beautiful table and had music playing and had restaurant meal that we had gotten takeaway from. But a lot of what we've been doing is just talking all of it out and trying to adopt a perspective that it is what it is. We don't have any control over it. We have control over our behavior. We have control over how we're dealing with all of this, but we don't have control over the fact that the coronavirus has shut down school. We've tried to do special things in the spring, in the summer, and even now to maybe mark milestones or make time special. But I think when Conrad was able to get to the point where he was able to say, yes, this is disappointing, But in the grand scheme of things, this is safe and it's better to be disappointed now and then not be sick or dead and then be among a cohort in the history of our world with, you know, millions of other kids who also missed out on these experiences. There's no single thing or constellation of things that families can do to completely make up for the fact that this is a time that is so filled with grief and loss. It's not just over people getting sick or dying, which that is absolutely worth grieving, but grieving the missed experiences and having that sense of loss and just grieving this alternate reality that we could have had and that we are not going to have, you know, grieving the different reality that we're going to have in this back to school time. Since Stephen's a teacher, you're living on the same academic calendar that I've always lived on. Back to school time is really special and spring break is really special. And the end of a school year, you know, that academic cycle every year is so full of promise and joy and Mm -hmm. lots of moments that are so meaningful and that mark the calendar year and the seasonal year for those of us in education. And all of my teacher friends are having the same kind of experience of grief and loss that my sons have had. But Mm -hmm. we talk a lot and we encourage Conrad to kind of process it and think through it. And, you know, at the end we say, we don't have control over this. What we can do is just try to live our day-to-day lives well. I think that's helpful because what you're describing is as a way of dealing with grief and loss, we first talk about it, we acknowledge the reality of the loss, but then we also accept the reality of the situation that we're in. And then we choose to think creatively about what we can do instead. I'm really interested too in families we know who have done different kinds of things to make it up to their children and give them some similar experience. I've got a friend who has a sister who lives in New York State, and a bunch of families up there actually got together and put on an alternative prom for their senior daughters and did not distance. They didn't follow safety guidelines, but it was so important that their children have those experiences. 
And I tend to be pretty practical and pragmatic. And my family was very pragmatic. And one thing that I have said to our kids is life is not fair. Just because kids before you had these really great milestones doesn't mean you have to have it. Things aren't always going to go your way. It seems like a harsh Mm -hmm. lesson to have to give them on top of everything that's going on. But we've had moments where we've had to say, this isn't a world war. We're not hunkered down with bombs going off around our house. We're not living in an attic like Anne Frank did. We're not being denied contact with our families. And so some of what we're doing too is trying to put all this in perspective. Once we get past all of the processing and thinking about it, just this is a reality of human life. Perspective is important. One thing I think about is the amount of anxiety that we're all experiencing right now. And I'm mindful about it because as a minister, I've done some family systems theory study, and that talks a lot about how anxiety is contagious within communities. When one or a few people become anxious, it spreads to other people. And the result of anxiety is that we become more reactive, less peaceful. We lose our ability to stay focused and to critically engage new information. And that can be really damaging to individuals and to communities. And you can see this if you log into Facebook. You can see how this work anxiety spreads and we become way more reactive and less reasonable. My training as a priest is to try to be the quote-unquote non-anxious presence for others, or at least try to be the less anxious presence for others. And I guess that one thing I'm concerned about right now is whether by sending my kids back to school, I'll be sending them into a very anxious community. And what can I do to prepare or protect my kids from that? When it happens, how can we identify and deal with anxiety constructively? One really important thing to pay attention to is that parents actually set the tone for what their children are experiencing. And if parents can maintain their own anxiety, that's going to go a long way toward their kids being able to manage anxiety. And then, of course, the talking. And so protecting our own mental health as parents and adults is pretty important. Psychologists will always say, if you're having any kind of mental health struggle, any kind of stressor, you need to make sure you're getting plenty of sleep, that you're exercising and preferably exercising outside because we know there are lots of benefits to being outside in the sun, outside Mm -hmm. in the fresh air. There's actually some really interesting research that was done with university students at a university campus that had an underground tunnel system, and they assigned half of their student participants to go from class to class only through the tunnel system, and the other half only was above ground. And they found that within two days, the students who traveled in the underground had significantly more symptoms of depression than the kids who were up above. And so just even being denied being outside For parents, too, if we can limit social media use, which is a wildly unpopular recommendation, I don't mean quit texting your friends or quit Zoom meeting with your friends, but stop looking at Facebook, stop looking at Instagram, quit Snapchatting. If you need to limit your exposure to the news, I think that's also reasonable. 
and then give your children the tools they need to manage anxiety when they're not with you. And so when our children are with us and they're feeling anxious, we can hug them, we can kiss them, we can talk with them, we can go for a walk or do something else constructive, you know, take care of the family pet. When they're away from us is when it's especially important that they have some kind of plan. And so depending on the age of your child, you can say things like, if you start feeling worried at school, here's some things you can do. You can say to your teacher, I'm feeling worried right now. You can say to your friends, I'm feeling worried right now. Can we stop talking about that and talk about something happy or something good? They can even do things. I mean, I know this sounds so cheesy. It's such the like cheese head psychology thing to do, but do some deep breathing and feel yourself get calmer. For kids who have a lot of anxiety, there are also techniques that you start with at home where you have them visualize a worry box. And when they start feeling worried during the day, you have them visualize putting their fear and worry into the worry box and closing it, knowing that they'll get to open the worry box with you at home later that evening. But having children get to the point where they can identify that they are feeling worried and then think to themselves, I am safe right now in my classroom. I will go home to my parents this afternoon if they can say to a teacher and let the teacher help calm them. If your kid is very anxious, it's worth being able to say to the teacher directly, hey, my child is feeling a lot of anxiety about these kinds of things. Please be aware of that. And so please don't talk about the news in class unless it's directly related to the curriculum. Please be mindful that when she is in these conditions or these circumstances, she's going to feel nervous. And so maybe you can say these kinds of things that we say at school. Everyone take a deep breath. Everything is okay. You're okay. Your parents will see you in a few hours. Let's do this one thing together to address concerns. I think even in some instances, asking our teachers to refrain from doing things that they normally would do that just add on more stress at this point. And so I know Conrad's 11th and 12th grade years were especially just rigorous and almost brutal academically. Mm -hmm. Teachers wanted to be preparing their students for college level work. And so they would do things that required the students to do an over the top amount of work, or they gave them purposely vague instructions because they wanted the students to have the experience of working through problems on their own of how to do projects. And while I was able to understand the reasoning behind it, when they're already so anxious and stressed, adding on that kind of unnecessary stress, it's brutal. It's completely unnecessary. I think it's worth communicating what our expectations academically are to teachers, but equipping our children to kind of deal with those things and practicing those things with them before they go to school. And for adults, my husband has blocked a Facebook friend mm -hmm. whose posts on Facebook are just really inflammatory and anxiety provoking and really challenging to process. And so Robert doesn't read that friend's posts anymore. That's a strategy for adults that kids don't necessarily have, but training them to be able to shut down that stuff from other kids is useful and it's worth role playing at home and practicing at home. And that's a therapeutic technique that's used with children is teaching them things to say to other people and then practicing it until they get to the point where it automatically comes out of their mouths.
So one of my listeners asked about how members of the church or just members of the community at large could be supportive of schools at this time, or schools, teachers, students. Do you have any ideas about what could be helpful to our school communities right now? I do. I actually asked one of my teacher friends about this last week, and she said, and this is true, we should ask our teacher friends. We should ask schools, principals, families with children going back to school, what do you need to be able to have a successful semester? What do you need right now to be able to cope with everything that's going on and teach and learn and just see what they say? So my friend is a music teacher in the North Little Rock School District. And one of the things that she said was, I need a parent who's really tech savvy to help me produce videos of songs that I can send to families that they can sing with their children. That's maybe not mm-hmm. going to be me, but mm-hmm. asking her what she needs is going to get you the clearest information you have. I suspect your church already knows what some educators need. I mean, they need to know that their students are having enough food to get through the day and the week. And so for communities of faith, I mean, my church has an active food pantry that serves about 300 families a month. Mm -hmm. And just being sure that we have enough food to give out and school supplies is something that we're doing to support families and schools. It'd be an interesting exercise if your church, if all of the church members reached out to their local schools or teacher friends they had and just said, what could I as one person do for you? And just by the way, my teacher friend, Lisa, the music teacher also said, I would love it if someone would just bring dinner to my house in that first week of classes. I know I'm going to be exhausted. I need to feed my family. And so you never know what would be helpful. And listen, it seems like maybe such a small thing, but for a teacher, to be able to be home and know that someone else is providing a meal so that she can or he can have a nice dinner for their family still, but then be able to have that time they would have spent preparing and cleaning up, relaxing with their family or getting an extra hour of sleep or having that extra hour of prep time or being able to watch a show on TV that's going to be entertaining and relaxing because you're not having to make a meal. So just ask and then be prepared to offer something because it's all going to be helpful. Those are great ideas. Well, there's a whole lot we could keep talking about, but our time is limited. This has been a helpful conversation. We probably haven't given any clarity exactly, but I do think that it's helpful when we can just talk through some of the uncertainty that we're living with right now. And that's the truth of it. No one has an easy answer for us. And that reminds me of one of my favorite prayers from the Book of Common Prayer of the Episcopal Church. It's the prayer for young persons. That's the title of it. And it seems maybe especially appropriate right now. So perhaps we could close our conversation with prayer. God, our Father, you see our children growing up in an unsteady and confusing world. Show them that your ways give more life than the ways of the world, and that following you is better than chasing after selfish goals. Help them to take failure not as a measure of their worth, but as a chance for a new start. Give them strength to hold their faith in you and to keep alive their joy in your creation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I will also mention for those of you who have a Book of Common Prayer that there are other prayers for schools and prayers for caring for children and prayers for parents. 
And I think that prayer is definitely something that we can be doing to support our community. Mm -hmm. Leslie, thank you so much for joining this conversation today. I think, as we say, our joy is complete. Well, thank you for inviting me. I always love having conversations with you, and this was no different. I appreciate it. We'll be doing another one of those driveway happy hours, I hope, soon. I want to thank all of our listeners today. The idea to do this particular episode was a suggestion from one of our listeners. So I will remind you that your ideas and comments are very much appreciated. Please do listen again next time. And remember that our J-O-Y is not complete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. <laughs>